How do you know we have the truth? Have you ever asked that question yourself? Or have you ever had someone ask you that question? How do you know that what you believe about Jesus is the truth? How do you know that being a Christ follower is the truth? I think some well-meaning people will ask that question and in an effort to try to find out the truth, they will probably go on a journey, and maybe some of you have been on this same journey, where you will begin to examine different faith systems, different religious gatherings, different religious things. You, you will focus on trying to determine wherein does the truth really lie. And there's a problem with that search. And the problem is this. In our efforts to use our logic and to try to figure out where the truth really lies, we don't even know the real problem that exists. The problem is that our logic is not always correct. What we have to realize is that logically, we have been affected by sin in every dimension. Even when we are meaning the very best, even when we are being as truthful with ourselves as we possibly can be, we run into a brick wall, and the brick wall is the wall of sin. Because our logic, our thinking, our emotions, our desires, our will, every part of our being has been affected by sin. With that understanding, what happens is a person who is seeking to know the truth and really wants to come to grips with the way things really are will often find that they are willing to embrace any religion or any faith system that emphasizes love and caring and good treatment of others. And they'll come to a conclusion like this, and maybe you've heard this, I believe that all religions have a seed of truth within them. And they're willing to accept that as the means by which they will find their peace. We were singing this morning about peace. A wonderful, wonderful theme. And one in which we can identify if we know the Prince of Peace. But we're still left with this question. How do we know that we have the truth? I believe in this third chapter of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wants to address that very issue. Now you remember, he is still dealing with people who opposed him. There were a group of individuals, and, and these people rose up on a number of different occasions, and we find them being addressed throughout different portions of the Scripture. But I guess to, to categorize them into one segment, we'd call them Judaizers, they were people who believed that it was appropriate and right and essential to embrace elements of the law as well as the elements of grace that come through our faith in Jesus Christ. And they would try to undermine the Apostle Paul. They would literally follow him into different cities and they would try to stir up the people against him. And so when we read the first six verses of this chapter, it is really Paul defending himself and defending the reality of what he believes. And so he's going to address very specifically the concepts that were motivating these people who were opposing him. And if you look back here at the first three verses, what you find is that Paul is basically saying this, 
I have been commended by God. He is the one who has commended me. Notice he says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? He says, these other people that are coming in, they will come in with letters as if they have been uh, commended to you by people who are leaders in other places, but they don't come bearing the truth. If you want a letter of commendation, look at yourselves. Look at the impact that the gospel has had in your own lives. And that's why he goes on to say this. Verse 2, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Now what he's telling them is this, you already know in your heart that what I brought to you was the truth. You don't need any other letters of commendation. You don't need anybody else coming to you, telling you and confusing you about what the truth really is. Then you get down to verse 4 and you find out that he is expressing the confidence that he has in the Lord who has commended him. And he says, and we have such trust through Christ toward God. He finally identifies his competence to do what he has been set apart to do in verses 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, that's where he's addressing the legalism that was being brought in by these others, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit kills gives life. He has now given a defense to these believers at Corinth of his validity in bringing them a message of truth. And now he goes into an expansion of what that message is about. He begins to divulge and to demonstrate in a variety of different expressions the reality of the true gospel. If something is going to be true, there are certain things that have to result from that. If there is a false religion, a religion that's based in some respects upon human desires and yet does not address the real issues of the heart, then these elements, these characteristics are going to be missing from that message. And so instead of going after all that could possibly be false, he addresses that which is true. And he begins by identifying for us the truth that is found in the gospel of Christ and what that true gospel will bring. Before he actually identifies the first element, he lays a little bit of background that the people at Corinth will understand. They have enough background to understand what was going on with the people of Israel and what God had done with them in seasons past. And so when we come down to the 7th and 8th verses, we begin to find out that this reference to an Old Testament event becomes the grounds upon which he builds the truth of the real gospel. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? 
So now what he is saying is this. He's saying, let's go back, and, and for our purposes and for yours, if you wanted to, to turn back to Exodus chapter 34, the events that are being described in these two verses are given to us there. What had happened was Moses had climbed Mount Sinai in the second event. You'll remember what happened the first time when he came back down. The people had thought he was dead and they began to worship the calf and, and so forth. But now he has ascended once again into this mount where he met face to face with God and God gives him the moral law that he brings back as it's written on tablets of stone. And as he comes back to the people, the event that occurs is his face is literally glowing because of the presence that he had spent with the Lord. And the people initially were frightened, and they went away and called them back. And as you read that portion in Exodus 34, he brings them back to express to them the realities, the truths of what God wanted them to understand under law. But there was a pictorial expression that is taking place. There's a mental image that is being created by what the people see in this glowing that is coming from Moses' face. And the image is this. As time went on, the glory that was being shown in Moses' face began to diminish. And it became a message of condemnation. The very thing that you might count upon for truth and for your eternal well-being is fading away. And it became a message to the people to the point where Moses took a veil and covered his face so that the people would not see the fading glory when he would go back into the presence of the Lord and meet with the Lord at the tabernacle that had been established. The glory would return. He would come back out. And, and then he would speak to the people the, the words of God. The law that demonstrated the character of who God was. This law that showed the righteous standards that would be part of God's being. Of which each of them had fallen short. So that rather than being the source of life, the law became the source of condemnation. You are all guilty. You have violated the law. You have broken the law. Was this the eternal truth that these people would have to cling to? Is this what you and I would have to cling to today? The law being the basis upon which we could find our righteousness? The law being the basis upon which we would find acceptance before God? And the answer is no. You can't find acceptance through the law. It faded. It went away in the sense that it was no longer the standard upon which people would build their lives for eternity, but it would show them why they needed a Savior. So when he is finished giving this illustration of what happened with Moses, he goes on into verse 9 to say this, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Now he begins to tell us the elements of true faith, the true gospel, the true good news. 
The true gospel brings righteousness. It gives you a righteous standing. And the standing that we have is before God in his eyes. A standing of righteousness because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that righteousness is an imputed righteousness so that when we put our faith and trust in Christ as our Savior, the sin that is ours is cared for by his sacrificial death. And the righteousness that is his becomes ours. He has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God before him in Christ. There has to be a clear understanding of what that implies. Do you feel weak sometimes spiritually? Do you ever feel weak? I'm sure you do. Uh, Have you ever failed the Lord? Have you ever doubted the Lord? Yeah, we're a little bit iffy about that one, but Lord, do you really work all things together for my good because I love you and I've been called according to your purpose? Sometimes that's a little bit hard. Have you ever backslidden? Yeah, I have. And you have too. And so have everyone in here. Do you know the beauty of the righteous standing before God? That doesn't change. That doesn't change. In your weakness, you still have a righteous standing before God. In your failure, you still have a righteous standing before God. In your backsliding, you still have a righteous standing before God. We are not accepted upon the basis of what we do. We are accepted upon the basis of with whom we are identified. You ever hear people use the little expression, and they usually mean this in a negative way, well, it's not what you know, it's who you know. What's wrong with that? That's how I'm getting to heaven. It's not what I know. It's, what, it's who I know. It's Jesus Christ. And the standing of righteousness becomes one of the great testimonies of the truth of the gospel. Because that standing inevitably works out in our practice. As imperfect as we are, as weak as we are, the reality of Christ's presence within us, as well as our being in Him, becomes evident by the way we live our lives. And we have new desires, and we have new directions, and we have new purposes, and we have new strength. We have a whole new realm of life in which we live. That's how we know it's the truth. The true gospel brings us into a standing of righteousness. The law couldn't do that. No religion can do that. Only a person can. The good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again from the dead, and when we rest in Him, we are clothed in His righteousness and accepted by the Father not based upon our behavior though our behavior does change 
but that isn't the basis upon which we are accepted. We are accepted because of our identification with the person of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verses 10 through 14 to show us a second element of this. He says this in verse 10. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. In other words, he's making a comparison here between the law that was given to Moses and the grace that comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that glory that people saw in the face of Moses was nothing compared to the glory that comes through what Jesus Christ did for us at the cross of Calvary. In verse 11, For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. This glory is going. It's, there, there's no hope here. There's nothing upon which we can build our lives for eternity. It's leaving. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. That which was passing away had to be veiled, but now the permanence of what we have in Christ becomes evident to us. The Lord doesn't take us for a period of time and let us go. The Lord doesn't even look at the behavior of our lives and say, you are no longer worthy of being a child of mine. No, when our lives become unworthy of the name which we carry, the Lord will bring chastisement. He will deal with us according to our sins in regards to a father disciplining his child. And sometimes the discipline becomes severe. Sometimes it even takes people home. But it is never removed. The relationship between the father and his children are never removed by virtue of our behavior. The real gospel gives a permanent standing and relationship with the Lord. There are a variety of times in the scriptures that the Lord refers to the permanence of what he has given us. In Revelation chapter 14 verse 6, he tells us that it is an eternal gospel. In Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20, he tells us that we have entered into an eternal covenant. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9, he tells us that we have an eternal salvation. The truth does not let you go. And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hands. It's good to know, isn't it? Don't, don't get caught up in the phrase, I'm hanging on to the Lord. You are not. He is hanging on to you. You can let go. He can't. He won't. As the verses go on, he tells us this in verse 15. Uh, pardon me, verses, I'm, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read uh, verse 14 down through verse 16 again. 
But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Truth, the true gospel, brings enlightenment. It seems to me to be strange, and if any of you have ever uh, had the opportunity to make friendships or to work with people who are of a Jewish background, it seems so incongruous that people who have had the Old Testament scriptures, and and I realize that most people of Jewish background today are probably um, not practicing in their Judaism. They might go to the high... Uh, holidays and things like that. But for the most part, they would be more of a secular. Uh, Most of the people in Israel are secularist in their beliefs. And if you've ever been there and you've talked to them, you find out that that's what the case is. And yet they have the Old Testament scriptures. They have the background of the coming Messiah. They have the prophecies that have been fulfilled perfectly in Him. And when you present these things, it's as if there is a blindness. Do you know why? Because there is a blindness. There's a veil that keeps their eyes in a very special sense from understanding the truth. But before Gentiles, before those of us who are not Jewish become proud, the same thing is said about us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We do not understand. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But when the truth emerges, understanding opens up. The old phrase, seeing is believing. Mm -mm. Believing is seeing. And when you believe in what Jesus Christ has done for you, an incredible event takes place in the thought processes of your mind. You begin... To see what it is that God had been saying throughout the centuries, through His Word that you might have read time and time and time again. And now all of a sudden you've trusted in Christ and everything begins to open up. You don't understand it all. None of us understand it all. But new truths begin to emerge and we begin to understand the realities not only of the things of this life but of the things of eternity. Because the true gospel, that which is truth, enlightens. Paul goes on. He's not done yet. He tells us this when you come down to verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The true gospel sets us free. Not free to live lives of carnal Attitudes, not free to live lives of rebellion, but we are set free to live lives that bring honor and glory to our Creator. We are not under the law. We've been set free from the law. We're not under the dominion of sin. Is there still temptation within our lives as believers? Absolutely. We're still tempted, but we don't have to give in. 
We have all of the defenses we need to stand against the temptations that come our way. And when we give in, we have failed to appropriate the, the proper defenses that God has given us against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we've been set free from that dominion of sin. We're set free from fear. Are you all worried about the government shutdown? <laughs> no. You know, it's really funny. No, I'm not. The, the news media uh, makes a big deal about the, the government being shut down. Do you know what percentage of the government has been shut down? 18%. 18%. percent. 82% is still going. And, and they make a big deal about the things that should get people all stirred up. And sometimes I wonder if there might be an ulterior motive behind the media. I, I could never say for sure, but it would make me wonder about how terrible it is that veterans can go to the memorial and uh, the, the World War II memorial and, and not be able to walk through it. You can see it. I don't know. I guess for that lady that wanted to get married at one of the parks, that was kind of nasty. She made all these plans and she couldn't get married and that, that was sad. I'm not afraid of the shutdown of the government. Uh, there are things that initially will frighten me, but the truth is the reality of what I have in Christ and what he has settled for all eternity When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it's well. It's well with my soul. Why? Because we don't need to fear anything that comes our way. The Lord has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. We have been set free, and let me just put it this way, the reality of this is yet to come. We've been set free from corruption. The day will come when all of creation, which is under corruption right now, death, decay will all be gone and even the body will be resurrected and we will be inhabiting a new resurrected body that is designed to be with the Lord forever. What are we afraid of? When you come down to the last verses here, Actually, just verse 18 says this, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The true gospel transforms. It brings about change. It's transformed our position in Christ. It's transformed our eternal destiny now it transforms our very experience so that what we can look at day by day as we live is the work of God 
conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that we all have one specific goal? All of us who know Christ. And that goal is to be conformed to the image of His Son. To be conformed to the image of Christ Himself. The good things that happen in your life, do you know why they've come? To help you become more like Christ. The tough things in your life, do you know why they've come? To help you become more like Christ. The time that we spend in God's Word, doing what we're doing right at this moment, is designed for the purpose of helping us become more like Christ. The time you spend in your quiet moments with the Lord, reading His Word, communing with Him through prayer, is all designed for the purpose of making us more like Christ. That's our goal. That's good. I don't want to be like Mike. Some of you, some of you older people may not know. Do you know what I just made reference to? You know, things pop into your mind and you say, well, I'm not even sure anybody's going to know what I'm talking about. Michael Jordan. Kids, you say, I want to be like Mike. Well, why don't you want to be like the best? Oscar Robertson? No. The best. To be like Christ. How do we know we have the truth? Right there. We know we have the truth. It's not arrogance. It's reality. And we do not, we do not waver on the reality of what we have in Christ. Because God the eternal God, the Son who called all things into being, by whom everything is created, by Him and for Him. And He is the one who holds all things together. When we come to Him and recognize that in His sacrifice at the cross of Calvary and through His resurrection, we can all have the truth we can all have eternal life. We turn to Him and say, Lord, it's because of what You have done that I have any hope for all eternity. And I thank You. And I thank You. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those who perhaps do not know the Savior today that this might be a day of decision in their lives, that they would turn in faith and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray, Lord, that the realities of what we have in Christ would never become old hat, but that they might be fresh to us, new, every day, realizing all you've given us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.